Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday the Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, what a week. We're at the end of the week. Thank goodness for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, some technical issues, I think it's fair to say, on the show today. Uh, coming up in the main uh, part of the show, uh, the episode, uh, I speak to Robert Winston, Professor Robert Winston. We talk about um, uh, child development during the pandemic. Uh, what happens when cele- scientists become celebrities and we end up with T-shirts and mugs and all that sort of thing of the people uh, uh, advising the Prime Minister? Uh, and uh, what, what benefits technology might bring us in the future? That's coming up as the main thing. First, though, the columnist panel, which unfortunately, uh, just as this starting was when all of my technology fell over on the show. So instead, here's Stig Abel with Robert Crampton and Esther Webber. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the 24-7 vaccine confusion. I think this is a really interesting story. Boris Johnson has been saying COVID vaccinations will be offered after 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as soon as supply allows. But Nadim Zahawi has said that rather than offer 24-hour vaccines, we should focus on the most vulnerable. Um, Robert, is the issue here we don't actually know where the problem in getting the vaccine out is? Because the government won't tell us whether they've got loads of vaccine and it's a question of needing 24 hours Mm. to push it out, or they haven't got enough vaccine. The suspicion is it's the latter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm confused because I thought we had 20 million doses of certainly one of the vaccines. But now they're saying uh, to do the two million a week, they, they can't do they haven't got the supply to do that at the moment, which indicates that we haven't got 20 million or we haven't got 20 million sitting there. Uh, from what I've read, there's a problem that it's not a problem with production. It's a problem with uh, packaging it up and getting the final uh, safety checks signed off. So if anything should be going 24 seven, it sounds like it ought to be that. Uh, rather than uh, you you can't vaccinate people if you haven't got the vaccine. And also you can't vaccinate them if uh, over half of them don't want a vaccine between uh, midnight and six, which is what our our, uh, survey said this morning. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a funny thing, Esther, that, that because I've asked ministers this question. You never get an answer, which is no, no surprise in some respects. The national security argument uh, that we can't tell you how many vaccines we've got we, for reasons of national security. Do you buy that? No, no. I mean, national security. Is, I mean, that's the sort of catch-all, isn't it? When they haven't got an when they haven't got an answer, or they don't want to give you the answer that they have got. Yeah, Esther, what security? What can they? What, what, what? I can't see where there's a national consider, security consideration. Esther, what's the what even? What's even the the specious thinking about that? Um, I, I suppose I think there has been some anxiety about any potential. Uh, revelation of the location of the vaccines and the potential for someone to try and um you know well half inch them basically <laughs> but um but i don't see really how the numbers actually play into that and um yeah it, it would seem to be that as robert said really the focus should be on deploying them as fast as we can um, rather than this um, theory of giving them overnight, which does sound very attractive, not least of all because it would give us a reason to leave the house for the evening. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think the the evidence shows that uh, not many people actually take up late night 
appointments when they're offered. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could take a drink with us, take a take a tinny with us, and and, and call it a <laughs> night out. That's not a terrible idea, Esther. Um, you wrote a piece yesterday, which I thought was interesting: the sort of rebirth of target culture. Uh, focusing on numbers. And there's two theories on this. One, that if you focus on big numbers, you always just end up misleading because you just try and hit the number, whatever the cost. And we saw that probably in testing. But there's a kind of Blairite argument, isn't there? Which is, if you constantly yammer on about numbers, you actually get things moving. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I suppose with all the talk about hitting the target of the four most vulnerable groups by the middle of February and the 100,000 testing target back in last spring, I, I wondered whether target culture was having a bit of a moment and we're used to thinking of it maybe as quite a, a negative thing, something associated with kind of the worst box ticking of the new Labour era. Um, but yeah, there, there's an argument on both sides. And I think uh, from the people I spoke to for this piece, it seems like no one really denies that there can be good outcomes from setting targets because it does speed things up. It puts pressure on the whole system. Uh, but it, it does mean there will be negative outcomes elsewhere and I don't think anyone denies that either but it's kind of whether the scale of the effort is worth some of the other things that may get missed along the way. Yeah it's a a very fair point. Another story doing the rounds Northern Policy Foundation says moving 50,000 civil servants out of London to the north of England could give the region a three billion pound economic boost it's proposing moving the Treasury to Leeds, the Home Office to Newcastle and the Department of Health to Liverpool. Uh, Robert Crampton, this is one of those ideas that actually, if everyone was to think fairly about this, generally for the good of the economy and the country, it would happen. But because it involves actually moving people who don't live in those places to those places, it will never happen. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I mean, we've, we've done it over the years. We moved the DVLA to Swansea and the DSS went to Newcastle and the Passport offices in Liverpool, isn't it? Uh, I think we had, I mean, we had saw this when the BBC went to Salford. There's a huge outcry, and then everything, everyone, a few people moan, and a few people refuse to go, uh, and then everything settles down, and the, 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 the world doesn't come to an end, and it's actually a good thing. Uh, I think this could, uh, I mean, I think this is a good thing. It's obviously a good thing for the North. I think it's a very good thing for London as well. It would reduce. Uh, pressure on housing and it reduced pressure on transport and I mean coming from the north as I do I know people who work in the public sector civil servants teachers local government officials who have an, an, a very good quality of life in the north which they uh, which they don't necessarily have in the south so uh, whether it will happen or not I don't know but it should happen yeah Esther there's an argument I've often felt for moving parliament to uh, to, to another <laughs> city in countries where they have these sort of parallel big cities where the financial sector and the administrative governmental sector are in different cities, you tend to get more equality. Um, but do you feel, start with the departments, do you think the departments might ever move? Um, it's a tricky one. I feel like these stories come up, you know, every couple of months and no one really disagrees that decentralisation would be a good thing. And as Robert said, we've managed 
some incremental change. But I think the problem is you really need something much more radical. You need something bigger. You need some of the senior people to be deployed around the country and the kind of centres of decision-making. Um, and that's the thing which is going to require like real political will. And this government has said they are the ones to do it. So let's see if they can put their money where their mouth is. Uh, and happily, we've managed to have that whole conversation without mentioning the term levelling up. So uh, well done to, to, to all of us. We'll give ourselves a prize later. Esther, you've got a piece in the paper today. We mentioned it on our show uh, briefly. Uh, wheelchair users being denied access to the new Big Ben. Yeah, so obviously this is a project that's been going on for uh, four years now. We've had Big Ben under scaffolding, one of the most iconic landmarks in the country um, and it's been confirmed just recently that the lift um, which is being built as part of the renovation won't actually be wide enough to accommodate visitors in wheelchairs and I'm told by some of the people who were involved in signing off the project that that was put forward as one of the main reasons for the huge uh, escalation in costs um, and now we're told that's not going to happen um, and there are conservationists and other people involved with the project who say look it was never it was never going to be possible because of the sort of extremely narrow design constraints they're operating on um, but it does seem like they probably could have spotted up four years ago rather than just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Uh, Robert, just uh, lastly, uh, what's in your column this week? Uh, I'm writing about making up silly songs at home uh, to pass Ooh, the time with go the on. children. When, when you make, you take a well-known tune and you put your own lyrics to it, which most of which are uh, unrepeatable because they're usually about, they're usually slanderous, <laughs> defamatory uh, lyrics about... Uh, famous people or family members and so on and uh anyway it's just a way of we're all finding ways to yeah. pass the time and that's one of ours how how, how old are your kids robert they're tw shamefully they're 23 and 21 oh god so in my mind i was saying i'm about to share my thoughts i have an 11 and 9 and a two-year-old right. we do that a lot about bums so we, we often take yeah, yeah, songs yeah. And no we, we still do that that never goes that never gets old really that's good because we've got a long lockdown yeah. ahead of us possibly still and uh, yeah, you, yeah. you guarantee yeah, me that bums will still work bums will never go away Esther Webb and Robert Crampton there. They both write for The Times every week. Uh, you can read Robert in Times 2 and in the Saturday magazine in The Times. And Esther obviously writes Times Web Box uh, Monday to Wednesday, the daily political email from The Times. Uh, you can read them both, but you're going to need to get yourself a digital Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Web Box. Up next is that interview with Robert Winston. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Now it's time for our big interview. Let's talk to uh, Professor Robert Winston. Uh, the pandemic has been tough on everyone, uh, but especially on children. Lessons have gone virtual, exams have been cancelled, and of course, lots of friends have been missed. Even before birth, the cruel impact on pregnant women separated from partners for key scans and treatments and, and even long uh, stages of labour early on. Uh, it's been incredibly tough too. Uh, 
while we're all grimly aware, I think, of the immediate impact of coronavirus, the death toll rising uh, again and again, we're less clear, I think, on the long-term impacts of the turmoil on young people. So who better to discuss this with than a man who's a hero to many for his work on IVF and a great chronicler of childhood through his landmark TV series, Child of Our Time. Professor Robert Winston, welcome to Times Radio. Uh, yes, good morning to you. Um, I was thinking when we were, I was uh, I knew that you were coming on the show. I was just sort of thinking that science science for a time maybe wasn't quite so cool, but now you know scientists are the new rock stars. Oh, science has always been cool, and it's been cool <laughs> since the time of Aristotle. It's been <laughs> and Archimedes. Um, I, I think science is cool, and I think it's interesting to consider that really, you know, in the seventeenth century. Uh, we had all those aristocrats doing scientific experiments in their home observatories. So nothing's really changed. I made telescopes as a child. When I was about 10 or 11, I made my first telescope, and I ground my first mirror when I was 13. Uh, so, you know, I think it's just it's a long tradition. <laughs> <laughs> it must be quite nice for you, though, to see that, you know, instead of celeb reality TV stars and, and people being famous for the sake of being famous, you know, what are the some of the most famous, coolest people in the country right now with T-shirts and mugs that Chris Whitty and Jonathan Van Tam and Patrick Vallance and so on. I, I'm very worried by that because I think seeing scientists as celebrities is really very dangerous because I think one of the real problems we have at the moment in society is that scientists are... It's very difficult not to become arrogant because you think you know everything. And I think it's very, very important for us to be extremely modest and to recognise that we have failings. And if we don't, um, there's a risk that we bring science into disrepute. And that certainly happened to some extent during the pandemic. I think that, you know, we're seen as being, you know, absolutely infallible, at least we were presented as infallible, but we know perfectly well we're not. And I think the real risk for people like me is to be very authoritarian, top down. And I think, you know, one of the big issues in our society, and this is a really important issue with regard to children as well, is that we tend to be, um, let's say, we don't communicate, we actually message. Uh, communication requires listening, and of course, we can't influence the public unless we actually listen to the worries and try and respond to them and actually are truthful. And as we've seen over the last year, there have been so many untruths about what's going on, including the education of children uh, and the uncertainties and I think we have to recognise that those uncertainties are very, very important, and we have to acknowledge them and try to uh, try to convey them in a way which is not unreassuring to the public. Uh, when you say untruths, do you mean mean saying things like we are going to open schools and then them not happening, or, or, or more specific uh, examples of where things have been said which aren't really the case? Well, I, you know, I think from the, from the very start, you know, the first the first thing that nobody remembers is that in fact the pandemic was predicted in the House of Lords, which in which I sit by Lord Patel in November, uh, not last November, but the November before last, really five months, five months before lockdown, when we recognised in the House of Lords that there was this new virus coming out of Wuhan, and we were concerned about it. And we presented, this was presented in a debate during the House of Lords, and it was not taken any notice of. And actually, over the last 15 years, uh, I and many other lords have sat on committees predicting that there was going to be a pandemic, but we've not been listened to. And of course, it's understandable that you're not listened to if, in fact, uh, you know, you're not respected. 
and people are not sometimes people are not respected because they've been so didactic or so authoritarian in what they presented and i think we didn't do a great job in communicating that very well and i think the government has followed that also by communicating communicating very poorly by constantly switching its line and i think that's been a big problem we've seen it in education i mean we're here to talk about education and the fact of the matter is that schools have been in absolute chaos heads have really had a real problem because one minute they're closing down next minute they're not uh, they don't have enough money they've not been given any extra resources really to deal with the most important part of our population you know the, the, the most important part of the population in the pandemic is the next generation because they are what are going to su su um, supply the future of our society and we've we've you know we've really got a problem there i think that we've got to try and solve Okay, well, let's 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 focus on uh, children then. It struck me that it was, it's now twenty-one years since you began *Child of Our Time*, where you you chronicled the lives of twenty-five children uh, born at the turn of the century. Uh, what a time for them to have come of age, you know, just at the point you know turning twenty-one uh, this year, um, uh, and their future is so uncertain. Well, the future is always uncertain, <laughs> um, uh, and I mean, my future was uncertain. I left school without knowing what the hell I was going to do. I. I um, I, I had a place um, which I didn't take at university because I was uncertain I wanted to do natural sciences. Um, and I ended up, by default, suddenly applying for medical school after I'd left, left uh, my, 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 higher, my, uh, my uh, senior education and ended up as a doctor. And I soon realized that actually medicine was not something I wanted to practice at that time because it was so authoritarian. I left and I went eventually into theatre which actually was one of the best things I could have done because I learned then how to communicate. And then I came back into science and, of course, have run, you know, science in a, in a laboratory and so on and, and managed a group of people. And I think what I've learned, actually, is that um, it's not really knowledge that's important. Um, that's why we're so poor in our education. It's not the facts that matter. It's actually how you collaborate and how you communicate, which actually really breeds success. And I think that uh, running a group of people and collaborating with people is the most important single thing we could teach every young person in this country. Uh, you know, we are living in a competitive system rather than a collaborative one. And I think that's not to the advantage of children. We all know that, that children benefit as well just from, from being with each other, playing together, learning together. What impact has it had that they haven't been in, in school for so many uh, weeks in the past 12 months losing those you, those those social those social links well i think your, your your question nails one of the biggest problems and i think what we've forgotten is that primary school children you know it doesn't matter whether they're learning the curriculum that much what matters is that their inquiry is being answered and that their ability to interface with other children of the same age is possible and of course the biggest thing that's been missing has been socialization and that's been very, very unfortunate. Children have become quite often very, very unhappy at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, uh, because, of course, they're missing their friends. And for them, going back to school is much more about going back to their friends than it is about going back to some formal education. And it's a very important deprivation. And, of course, that deprivation is, com is compounded in poorer societies. One of the big problems in Britain is that we have very uneven as you know, of course, you know, the, you know, I was lucky. I went to a, a school that was very well funded, 
but most children don't. And if you go around the coastal of coast, for example, the uh, Essex coast, if you go up to the, Dar the, 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 the Yorkshire coast, if you go up to the northeast or the northwest, you see massive deprivation, which is true in the big cities as well. And that actually, I think, is a big problem for uh, our children. They have that, that lack of socialization is not helpful. It just seems to be something that, that constantly drops off the sort of the, the radar as well. I mean, just this week we've had the the row about these free school meal packages, and uh, you know, but that was the the how do parents who normally get free school meals when their children go to school cope yeah. during the schools being shut? That was a debate in March, April, and May last year. It just doesn't seem to be a, a sort of a firm grip on 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 all of those issues. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary, and congratulations to Rashford too for really trying to sort out the government. Amazing, what a, what, what a good thing for a professional footballer. Usually, usually rather reviled, you know, as being <laughs> people who useful to our society. He did something really useful. He used his profile to really change change that. But you're, and it was a nonsense, you know. It was absolutely unbelievable that the Department of Education, uh, you know, Gavin Williamson has to take responsibility for that. Uh, could argue that really we weren't going to provide these these poorer families with with meals, because of course what was failed to recognise that educationally, if you are hungry and if you're starving, you do not learn. Uh, your brain doesn't function so well, and of course that if it's prolonged leads to lower uh, lower educational ability and lower cognitive. It leads to cognitive impairment. So actually. By actually having a, a group of children who are not well, with, uh, not well funded for a proper diet, is a long-term problem, even though it may only be lasting for a year or two during their development. And and what what sort of long-term impact can that have? I suppose that's the thing that we, that we lots of people are asking themselves: is that uh, what what impact will the last few months have on the next few years? Well, I'm not I'm not too concerned about that because I think on the main. Although, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, one of my areas, of course, is genetics. And, of course, more recently, it's how our genes respond to our environment, epigenetics, it's called. And I think what we know from epigenetics is that the human is amazingly resilient. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, you, you can return uh, to very good cognitive ability and cognitive function. But you won't do that, of course, if you're not supplied with the educational needs. Now... I, I want to come back to something, if I may, that you said at the very beginning about, you know, it's 21 years since the child of our time finished, uh, you know, after 21 years uh, since it started. And, you know, now, of course, children are facing a very uncertain time. I, I think we should look at this very differently. I, I think we should look at this as the most massive opportunity for our society, because here we have a real chance to reevaluate what we're doing and particularly reevaluate education. And I think that means, for example, really deciding, is this syllabus that we're so hooked on that important? Is it not more important to give children a broader education, which includes collaboration, socialization, and so on, which include, so for example, even going up to the, and I speak from somebody who's now working, of course, as you appreciate at the Russell Group University, which is, you know, very high powered science. But actually, whilst that's important, far more people are really needing a broader education. And of course, the A-levels in some ways don't do that. They actually confine people to more knowledge, which they could probably look up in a book about <laughs> their subject, and not enough about the background, the ethics, the social consequences, 
the arguments, the ability to analyze and so on. And I think we're re- we, we, run, we, we miss that. So the opportunity is really here for us to do something about that. And the other thing, of course, is that what children are not being told is that actually there are golden opportunities for them too, because, of course, look at what's happened in the last year. The amazing, as you pointed out, the burgeoning of science. It's absolutely extraordinary what has happened in science. And suddenly also, it's not just the sciences, the humanities and the arts. You know, suddenly we're realizing how much we miss in the arts uh, as a result of the pandemic and how we need to protect them much more vigorously. And the government hasn't yet taken that on board, but I hope it will in due course. And as for the humanities, of course, the humanities are very much at the core of what we should be doing in our education. We should all be able to you know, use language properly and not just simply be communicating on Twitter, which, of course, uses <laughs> language. And actually, well, it, you know, it actually debases language. It debases argument. So not be taught to look at a structure of an argument rationally. Uh, and what about the, the? You touched on it slightly there. The, the question of A levels and GCSEs and SATs. I mean, all, all cancelled again this year. Uh, if you'd have suggested that a couple of years ago, you know, people have thrown the, you know, people have thought the, the world would have stopped turning, and yet children will progress and they'll they'll move on to the next yeah. stage and all of that. Do you think there's an opportunity to completely rethink the yes. amount of testing? Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. And of course, you know, for the last year, a lot of us have been saying, well, what? Why are these exams so important? Um, because, in fact, you know, w- when I went to university to do medicine, um, virtually, I mean, nothing that I'd learned in school really taught me anything about doing medicine. Um, you, you know, it was my, my, my general knowledge was much more important. You know, the ability to read a decent book or m- manage an argument or debate in the debating society. That was actually critical i think to my education and it became critical to me as a doctor and i learned as a doctor that actually you do something which is immeasurably important which cannot be measured in terms of facts you learn that for example in front of you you've got somebody who's desperately vulnerable in pain and uh, really at risk they're worried about they've got something seriously wrong with them they think they're going to die they're worried about money they're about their family and you at that moment have immense power over that individual. It's nothing to do with what you learn, but it's to do with your empathy and how you understand and get inside the position that that person in front of you is. And if you do that right, those patients never forget you. 30, 40, 50 years later, they still remember you. Um, I just had a letter this week from somebody on whom I operated um, almost uh, just over, uh, just about 50, almost 50, you know, more than 50, 55 years ago. And that letter pours out an extraordinary emotional consequence. And that woman remembers exactly what happened. I'd forgotten, of course, but she remembered. And that is a very, very common thing that we need to remember. We can do all sorts of things with that empathy. And, you know, the skill set is something that you learn as an apprentice, actually, rather than with just bald facts most of the time. And I suppose, and that's you know, certainly something that lots of people would have, would have realised during the pandemic if they or loved ones are being treated um uh during the with, with coronavirus and i suppose that's the thing isn't it we remember that someone gave us great care not the drug that they gave us or the treatment or whatever it is um the thing that you remember is the the kindness and the care well i think that's absolutely right of course it is and you know one of the things we've forgotten is that now of course because we've got this so-called 
um, diktat of personalized medicine based on your genetics, uh, personalized medicines become impersonal because now, of course, the doctor looks at the computer screen rather than the face of the patient. And I think that's something we need to come back to is to remember that actually touching somebody, um, listening to somebody, um, really trying to understand somebody is as healing as most of the drugs that we're able to give. Um, can I just come back to another issue with regard to opportunity? So time yeah, of to course. Do that. Well, I think one of the one of the areas where we've got real opportunities recognize we're going to have to change the way we teach. You know, at the moment, for example, you and I are, are conversing on Zoom. It's not ideal uh, because actually we're not actually face to face and you probably can't see my nuanced expressions and I can't see yours at all. But actually, there is no question that for some years now, universities have been working very hard on this sort of platform to teach regularly. And it's extraordinary, for example, that we're living in a society where suddenly computers are being handed out to schools without any training at all, without any protection at all. And, you know, we have not actually prepared ourselves for the time when really we're going to be doing a huge amount of communication electronically, virtually. Now, of course, that doesn't replace the face-to-face -face contact, but there's no question it becomes an important opportunity for us to do this far better. And at the moment, when you go on Zoom, and I'm sure you must do this with people, you see people, for example, sitting with their back to a bright window so you can't see their face. <laughs> you know, simple stuff like that. And so we've got to learn to use these platforms uh, and make certain that actually we are able to communicate much more effectively. And so one of the things is how we use a camera. So when you're using a camera, you've got to learn that actually you're talking to a person, not a camera. Uh, and there are a whole range of that. In my mind, that's an opportunity that really we've been losing. And now suddenly in a flurry of panic, you know, the, the Department of Education is suddenly handing out old computers to lots of children. But I mean, I don't know whether, in fact, they're protected against their privacy is protected. I mean, a child uh, using a computer at home uh, where, in fact, that computer is being fought over with three other children, other siblings, and probably the parents as well in, in poorer families. You know, it's not an ideal situation. It's certainly better than nothing. But we should have been preparing for this much sooner. And, and you know, for some Yes, certainly at Imperial College where I work, we've been discussing online learning for the last 10 years. And so, you know, we could actually do quite a lot helping schools to do this better. In fact, our outreach program, uh, in fact, that after this interview with you, I've got going off to our outreach discussion about using Zoom in a particular way to, um, to really deal with some of the issues that primary school children have. So, you know, we are starting to use that platform, but it's very, very delayed. I mean, it's interesting. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I spoke to a thousand um, primary school children on Zoom, just answering questions. We had a children's question time, and it was an absolute riot. It was wonderful. <laughs> you know, a whole series of state schools, about 24 of them, collaborated in the Midlands, and we just simply answered their questions for an hour or so. And uh, then, of course, the emails as well. But, 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 you know, it, 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 there really is a basis for thinking about how we could use this in a different way to help um, informal, uh, informally formal education. Well, I suppose it's one of those things, and it's, it's all been a bit of a, a lottery as to whether or not you had a teacher or a lecturer who, who enjoys technology and, and has thought about it and is imaginative, and others who, you know, 
teachers who, who, who like being in the classroom and don't like being online, their children suddenly find themselves at a bit of a disadvantage. I just wanted to ask you, just because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, about um, pregnancy and the experience of, of uh, um, women especially going through uh, pregnancy during the pandemic. And again, lots of the decisions that were made about not having a partner in the room for, for scans and large parts of labour, that all goes back to those human interactions again, doesn't it, and the impact that they have. Yes. Well, of course, one has to protect society. And, of course, we have a prime responsibility not to spread this very, very infectious virus. But I think some of the decisions were made in panic. Uh, and I think really, you know, if somebody's been living with a pregnant woman, um, for the last nine months, it's pretty likely that if she's got the virus, you're going to get the virus anyway. And um, a huge number of people, uh, including some members of my family, have definitely had the, the virus uh, without really being absolutely clear it was coronavirus. So, you know, I think I think you know much of the time some of those precautions are probably hard. You know, I think there's been a real issue about not really looking at pregnancy properly. I, I would have thought, I was a bit disappointed. I thought, felt the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is, you know, one of the colleges of which I'm a fellow, could have probably done a bit more about this, about really being a bit more upmarket about how a pregnancy might have been handled better. The, by the way, the other issue, of course, is that the, the, terrible, the terrible thing is not seeing your your most close and loved ones as they're dying, not being able to be next to them. Yeah. And that... That, that that was also, I think, a terrible shock when people suddenly realise they're not going to be able to do that. Um, we, we've talked an awful lot about education and and uh, and the way things look for going forward. Let, let's try and sort of end on a on an optimistic note. Um, where do you, what do you think are the are the positives? Where do you think education might be in I don't know twelve months time, five years time? Um, presumably, hopefully, not with Ed, Gavin Williamson still in charge. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe, you, maybe you're a fan. Maybe you're a fan. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I, think, I don't think the Department of Education has an easy job to do. But, and I think education will still be probably a bit chaotic. It's bound to be for the next year or two. But in the long term, I don't think there will be a massive um, uh, evidence of hugely deprived children now grown into adults who are unable to do work. I just don't think that will happen. I think we will learn new ways. And, you know, if you look at human history, you know, again and again, there have been major disasters which have affected societies. But the extraordinary thing is how rapidly human ingenuity and human fortitude and human character actually uh, comes to the fore and people not only survive, but actually thrive. And as you can see again and again, most of the big conflicts we've had in society have led to very, very important development. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.